Welcome to the Great Lakes Equity Center Equity Spotlight Podcast. This podcast series will highlight organizations and individuals in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana who are working to advance equitable practices within school systems. This is the fourth episode in the Centering Equity and Educator Effectiveness podcast series. Each episode in this series will focus on demonstrating equitable practices in curriculum, instruction, or the learning environment. My name is Nikki Coomer. I am a graduate assistant with the Great Lakes Equity Center, and I will be hosting today's podcast. This is the first of a three-part series with Dr. Muhammad Khalifa. We will be discussing centering equity in culturally responsive and sustaining learning environments for Muslim students. Dr. Khalifa is an associate professor in the Department of Organizational Leadership, Policy, and Development at the University of Minnesota. He is most known for his work in urban schools across the U.S. as one of the leading experts on culturally responsive school leadership and context. He has also developed he has also developed online equity audits and has helped hundreds of schools and principals become culturally responsive in the U.S. and abroad. Welcome, Dr. Khalifa. Thank you. All right, so today we are discussing how to center equity in developing culturally responsive and sustaining practices for Muslim students in classrooms. Before we move forward, I think it's important for our listeners um, to understand what Muslim students may face in schools today. Can you explain for our listeners what forms um, what forms anti-Muslim sentiment may take in classrooms? Yes, uh, well, this question is one that um, requires a bit of uh, backgrounding and, and a bit of uh, historical uh, contextualizing for one to answer. Um, historically, oppression has sort of taken place not only through genocide, uh, which is the killing of people, but also through a dis-genocide, uh, and this latter being the total destruction of knowledge, identity, and all other forms of, uh, for example, Muslim epistemology, the Muslims' way, Muslims' ways of being. All right, and there are multiple ways, and so this type of destruction of of, of uh, people it, uh, really started to occur, I think, for the, one of the first times against Muslims in Andalusia and Spain, which is the uh, great um, Moorish empire that existed in Spain. It was retaken by the Christian monarch, uh, where both genocide or killing of mass numbers of people uh, happened, but also epistemocide happened, whereas uh, uh, Western Europe, Christian Europe had maybe you know, two or three thousand books in the entire entirety of Europe, where you had millions of books in this uh, Muslim-held part of Spain uh, that were completely just burned. I mean, well, the valuable books were taken over to Rome, but and, and other Christian uh, areas. But the remainder of the books were just sort of um, burned. And so, after some very uh, brief debates happened within the Christian Empire. Uh, Queen Elizabeth comes, she retakes this area of Spain, she begins to um, exterminate people and knowledge. And this is really the first, so, so it's impossible for us to understand what happens, for example, in a 2016 classroom without understanding really the origin of how Muslims uh, began to be viewed. And so that's why I'm kind of covering some of this history uh, very briefly. And so what happened is that you had these debates that happened in, in, in this part of Europe about whether these Moors, these you know darker-skinned Muslims and Jews and women also were uh, also tortured and killed, uh, whether they were truly human and so therefore could be enslaved, or whether they were, uh, were I'm sorry, if they were truly human and could not be enslaved but just could be con- kind 
kind of controlled and oppressed, or whether they were subhuman, and since they were subhuman, could actually be enslaved, right? So this whole biological versus cultural argument really started at this early uh, level, and so um, what, what you know, in, in in the modern era, you have you know similar to these arguments about Muslims and about other minoritized people popping up, and so um, the, you know instead of they're being uh, subhuman at that time, what, what what you see now is that they're uncivilized, they're dishonest, they're threatening, they're not really like us. All of these kind of discourses are kind of popping up, and it's not really all that different from what indigenous people in America or blacks uh, were described as. In fact, this is a direct legacy, how black and indigenous people are there. There's a direct legacy of what happened to Muslims. It's so ironic that we're talking about Islamophobia now and the, the, the way that otherness and oppression and uh, those kind of things happen in this country are a direct result of what happened to Moorish Muslims in Spain. And so, um, because of course, 1492 is when Columbus came here, and that's exactly when these things were happening in Spain at that time. So um, it's important to know that this happened to and to uh, other minoritized people in this country, but it's also important to know that, uh, obviously, as I'm, I'm kind of indicating, uh, that Islamophobia has been around for a long, long, long time. Of course, it intensified after September 11th. Mm -hmm. Now, you asked, you asked about uh, anti-Muslim sentiments in the classroom. I would posit, and I would argue that, uh, as a leadership scholar, that um, these occurrences happen inside and outside of classrooms. Um, Anti-Muslim bullying happens on the playground, in the hallways, in the lunchrooms. Um, they're often driven by these early historic discourses, you know, yeah. um, that we were just talking about. Um, and it's a uh, very, very insidious discourse about Islam and Muslims, and really children are indefensible against uh, against this kind of thing. Uh, for example, Dr. Abdi here at the University of Minnesota explained that it could be more direct types of Islamophobia, such as making remarks uh, about Muslims as terrorists, or it could be much less direct, but equally as violent, right? Such as asking female uh, Muslim students about mutilation, or asking about something that's happening in the Middle East, where these kids are obviously here and born here and positioned here, many of them. So, um, this, you know, this is a particularly bad time for Muslims because it forces them really to choose between their Americanness and their Muslimness when this hadn't even been an occurrence before. They just saw themselves as American and Muslim. Right. But when they come into these school spaces, they have to force, they're forced to choose parts of their identity in order to be comfortable. Uh, and if they choose the Muslim identity, they would typically be outcasted, okay? And so um, this is a very violent, it's, it's, it's also particularly bad now because if you come into a school or a classroom and say, you know, these black kids are this, or, you know, these gay kids are this, or uh, these transgender kids, or these Jewish kids, or any other group, I think that you would find immediate resistance. In some cases, depending on how much privilege that group has, you will be suspended, perhaps even expelled. Okay. Yep. Muslim anti-Muslim bigotry, anti-Muslim sentiments are virtually unchecked in American society today, um, and that because that's the case, you have kids. I won't say his name. Uh, there's a Somali uh, child in one of my son's schools who recently told my son, "Hey, I'm not Muslim anymore." And when he asked why, he said it was because there's a verse of the Quran about uh, beating women, right? So this is a 
standard critique, uh, Islamophobic critique, um, about uh, that. That's often leveled at Muslims, and so this often happens with people going through um, picking uh, verses from here or there out of the Quran or some other Islamic text, and without having any context to that, right? Um, just going and characterizing an entire religion or entire faith that way. And it happens not only through text, but even the actions of a few. So like less than 0.0001% of the Muslim community supports any type of terrorism, but you would know that by watching the news here or, or listening to discourse here, and you would know that we uh, don't beat our women and that we don't do this, because we're characterized by um, such a small percentage of what actually occurs and so this Muslim kid came and told my son, "Hey, look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not this anymore because of this verse in the Quran." So even Muslim children are forced to sort of see themselves and see their religion through the eyes of so the, the 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 privileged group and the powerful group here, and it's caused him to to make this choice and make this decision to leave the faith now. That's problematic, obviously, because not only because one in three women in America are abused, but it's because that they're abused in America is invisibilized and normalized and accepted. And so what happens when people are othered is that they're the only ones that are held to the standard. No one else is held to a standard. So this young Somali kid is moving away from Islam, presumably to Americanness, in his mind anyway, not understanding what he's moving towards. Perhaps is the same, maybe even worse, maybe even much worse, in fact, statistically much worse, than what he's moving away from, all because he began to accept this. So it's, it's more than just somebody coming and teasing and saying, hey, are you a terrorist? You see, right. it's a very deep, very complex, very, um, um, very, very important yet uh, misunderstood yet complex narratives that Muslim students are, are constantly grappling, grappling with and having to make these big decisions, oftentimes at the exclusion of their families and their parents, because their parents, especially if they're immigrants or refugees, might not understand what they're doing. Thank you so much. You know, when I was writing that question, I sort of had in my head what, you know, what anti-Muslim um, sentiment or Islamophobia might look like in schools, but honestly, I was not aware of the depth of of what that is and and as you you know describe the effect that it has on on children um i'm so glad that we're talking about this in this month's episode though because i'm hoping that we can you know and in moving forward through our questions um you know and with you sharing your expertise on culturally responsive practices talk about how we can start to hopefully address that in schools that concludes part one of this series. This podcast was brought to you by the Great Lakes Equity Center, directed by Gail Cosby. The Great Lakes Equity Center is funded by the U.S. Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout the six-state region of Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio, and Wisconsin. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government.
This podcast and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for the use for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or by any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Great Lakes Equity Center. Finally, the Great Lakes Equity Center would like to thank Indiana University School of Education, as well as Principal Investigator Dr. Kathleen King-Torius and Co-Principal Investigators Dr. Brendan Maxey and Dr. Tashun Nguyen for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support Region 5.